Welcome to the latest episode of the Maven's Havens podcast. Today, I am joined by Darius Goldman, founder over at Meritas, which is offering income share agreements to uh, to prospective students so that they can afford uh, the college of their dreams as a pathway to the career and life they have always dreamed about. Darius, thank you so much for joining me today. Real pleasure to have you. My pleasure to be on. Thanks, Eric. Sure. So now that um, you're here, I'd love to just kind of dive right in. So maybe you could tell us um, a little bit about your background, uh, what kind of led you to um, you know, decide this was your entrepreneurial passion, as well as you know, details about um, income share agreements, how they kind of work in the education domain. And uh, yeah, I'll kick it off to you to uh, jump right in. Sure, I'll get it started. So who am I and why should you care? I'm Darius uh, Goldman, founder and CEO of Meritas. We are the leading ISA program manager. We provide learning institutions with a full service turnkey SaaS platform to design, originate, and manage incentive aligned tuition programs that are proven to increase enrollment and democratize access to education. So, Eric, that's a mouthful. So, what are we really? We're a career acceleration platform. Our product is careers. We use ISAs, and I'll get into what on ISAs and why it's specifically suited for this, but we use ISAs to ensure a proper alignment of risk between prospective students and schools. And students come to us to find schools where they could upskill or reskill. Um, they do it on our platform by not paying anything up front. That's how the ISA works. They pay only after they get a job, if they're gainfully employed. And schools and employers use our platform to find prospective candidates for their programs or um, jobs, job filling through our graduates. I would definitely like to understand more about how ISAs work, but I'm also curious about kind of what brought you uh, to this point. Um, you know, your I'd love to hear more about your background and then how you conceived of this idea and decided this was the, the winning path, so to speak. Sure. So I like to say I'm a retired corporate lawyer. I, uh, when I was growing up, I was a teenager and my father was quite noble at the time. He said to me, I don't have a business to give you, so I'll give you an education. And what you do with that is on you. So pretty, pretty poignant thing to say to a, an 18 year old. And I looked at different career paths, found law. What I, what I liked about law was it's a backstage pass. In three years of law school, you get 300 years of American history. And then whatever business you want to be in, you could use your legal background as a gateway to get into that career. So I came out of law school, worked at a New York City white shoe law firm for a decade plus, made partner, reached the pinnacle of what you were taught to assume was what you wanted, right? Work at a law firm, make partner, run a practice group. But at a certain point, and this is around 2018, I felt I was stagnant. I felt I wasn't growing emotionally, personally anymore, despite you know, working, building my hours and, and creating revenue for the, the firm. So I looked at the asset classes that I had legal expertise in and decided to go over from the service side to the entrepreneurial side. I picked income share agreements or ISAs because unlike the other products that I had specialty in, with an ISA, 
there's that moral good that accompanies it, right? You're, you're taking first-generation Americans, you're taking impoverished Americans, and you're helping them upskill at no upfront cost. So I, I, I like the, I like the, the social impact of ISAs. Decided to work in ISA specifically because of that. And now here's the entrepreneurial journey that you're asking for. I don't know what I want to do, but I know I want to work in ISAs. So I foolishly create a straight-to-consumer ISA funding company where I'm working out of my living room. And it was, it was meant to be only a lifestyle business, but I'm financing nurses and lawyers because those were the two categories that were easiest for market entry, right? Nurses, high demand job, lawyers, I'm a lawyer. I sort of knew how that works. I could underwrite those on my own. That experience quickly led to a partnership with a skills training boot camp, where I then helped institute the ISA program for the entire boot camp, boot camp wide. That experience, talk about you know the the pathway to entrepreneurship. That experience led to a disappointment on our end with with the legacy servicer we were using to manage our ISA portfolios. Our boot camp taught uh, sales professionals how to be SDRs, sales development reps, frontline salespeople at SaaS companies. And SDRs is a very commission-heavy business. So our servicer wasn't keeping up with the commission cycles. And in ISA, you pay what you earn. That's the most important part of <laughs> knowing what your, your, your customers are earning. So I created a software for us to use, uh, native built, not using any static systems, hired a development team. We built it to our specifications from running a school. We knew what we needed to see. And that was, that was the birth of Meritas. It was first born to be a in-house product, but we, we quickly started getting requests from industry peers to use it for their programs. And then we licensed it out to other schools and then realized this was the product itself. We solved the problem that the industry had, we solved it for ourselves. So I became disassociated with the school and focused entirely on Meritas. And now we license the software that we created for ourselves to schools, universities, skills training programs to administer their own ISA programs. That's a, you know, it's a fascinating story. And it's similar to several I've heard of people just kind of creating tools for themselves um, whether it's just to add, you know, convenience to their day. I once interviewed at a company. It was like a office uh, catering company that started with a guy who just had who was buying lunch for people. So um, necessity is the mother of invention, as I'm fond of saying. And I definitely hear your point about SDR income fluctuating and being unpredictable, having done business development. Um, but at the risk of sounding a bit sappy, it sounds like what drives you is a genuine desire to really help people achieve their dreams, uh, make those dreams come true through uh, you know, a vehicle like ISAs um, for people who normally don't have an alternative, it sounds like. It's twofold. Um, there is a reward in helping others, but the individual has to come first. I have to come first, you have to come first. So what do I mean by that? I, I became dissatisfied being a lawyer. I want to do something for myself. And um, until you're ready, and, and I'm speaking this because I know most of your audience are budding entrepreneurs, but until you're ready to address your own needs first, you're not in a position to help others. So I got into an industry that gave me passion, 
And that passion enabled me to create a product that solved the problem and then solve problems for others. But to help others, you have to help yourself first. That's an excellent point. Um, you know, so maybe crossing over from a career-oriented path to an entrepreneurial one, some people may find value in stepping back um, before they take that leap and finding something of a transition. Um, it could be into a career that does give you some kind of satisfaction that helps that passion blossom. And, that, and from there, once you realize you're in the right place, as you put it, you can um, you can make the entrepreneurial leap and really start creating on other people's behalves to help them achieve their dreams or bring value to their lives. Exactly. That's an excellent point. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm curious about, uh, can you tell me a little bit more specifically about how income share agreements work for students? Sure. So the reason we use ISAs and the reason I say it's the glue behind our product Let's, let's explain what an ISA is by comparing it to traditional student loans that we all have. With the loan, you borrow money, you pay in advance, you pay before you know whether or not that education is going to lead you to a better place, whether or not that program is going to get, help you get a job, and whether or not that job will pay you more than you're receiving now. And on top of all that, you have to pay interest on your loan. Now, some schools have deferment where interest may be paused, but the balance is still there. And then once interest accrues, the amount you owe always rises until you're able to pay it off. Compare that to with the ISA. With an ISA, it's an investment in the person's future earning potential. So it's not debt, it's, it's credit. And you're letting a student take a course at no upfront charge. It's not free, it's just at no upfront charge. And they're paying for that course after they graduate, after they get a job, and after they're earning more than a minimum income floor and they pay it back by paying a percentage of their gross earnings so for example uh, you would pay 10 percent of your earnings but only if you're earning more than forty-five thousand dollars a year when you're earning less than forty-five thousand dollars a year so in that case your payments would be 450 dollars a month but when you're earning less than forty-five thousand dollars a year calculated on a monthly month-to-month -month basis your payments automatically stop and there's no interest accrual. That's the biggest difference between the ISA and the loan. So you know the most you'll ever pay when you sign the agreement. With the loan, it'll keep growing and growing and growing until you're able to pay it off. And if you don't pay enough to lower the balance, the interest will keep accruing and your balance will still grow despite payments. With the ISA, you know the most you might ever pay, and it stops automatically when you're earning less than a designated amount. I see. So the real big advantage is that it is tied really to your ability to pay, whereas traditional student loans are very unforgiving. Um, having known people that have had them, that's kind of how they describe it. Yeah. And, and so who would use ISAs? And this is, this is why they use ISAs. Schools that believe in their product use ISAs. Schools that say, come take this course. This course will lead to a job offer. This course will lead to a career earning X. They're well positioned to give ISAs. You see ISAs with a lot of coding boot camps. The reason is, you know, using traditional metrics. If you go to Harvard, Yale, Columbia, NYU, chances are you're going to get a great job. But if you go to a lower ranking school or a regional college, it might be harder to get a job afterwards. So you have these coding boot camps that teach a very specific skill set. And 
they don't necessarily have the name recognition of a Harvard, Yale, Princeton. So they're essentially guaranteeing their product to the student. They're saying, come take this course. It's an eight to 12 week course. If we get your job making more than $50,000, then you pay us by sharing 12 and a half to 15% of your gross earnings. But if we don't, if we don't work for you, you don't pay us. You know, that's the biggest difference. And that's why I say it's a great. Yeah, I mean, after all, there if they can't uh, get you into onto that career path, or at least something, um, you know, where you can accumulate some sort of means, then they get nothing. They've given you their education and you know paid the cost of that and got nothing in return. So yeah, they it incentivizes them not just to offer you, let's say, like a good um, a good education, but any other you know services, whether it's the alumni network or whatever they have to actually promote you into uh, you know the role you're looking for, or just a job. Exactly. All right. No, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and yeah, no, I, I can see why that would um, that would appeal to a lot of people. So, getting off the ground, right, and getting this going. I mean, you need to. You want on the one hand get students. Uh, that would take advantage of ISAs as well as schools to get on board with this. I mean, maybe a lot of them, uh, you know, didn't have it or, uh, you know, they don't know about it. I guess, what are some of the challenges um, putting it all together? What are some of your greatest challenges at least you faced from, you know, going from concept to company? Sure. Um, I equate it to driving a car on day one. And let's fast forward past the beta companies that didn't lead to Meritas. But on day one of Meritas, when we knew we had a product, you can't just say, okay, now I'm gonna get students to come to the platform. I'm gonna get schools to use the product. It's it's not a puzzle where you could just put the pieces together in advance. It's it's really driving a car down the road and and, and learning to pivot quickly. And what we did and what we're, we still do and what we're good at is being singularly up obsessed with one aspect of the business and not thinking about anything else until we've mastered that. So what, what does that mean for us? We're a technology company first. We created a software platform to originate and manage and service income share agreements. Think of it as QuickBooks for ISAs. Schools use our software to manage their programs. We couldn't even think about getting students to our site or getting schools to, to license our software until the software that we created worked and we created it for ourselves. But once we created it for ourselves and we bring on two early adopters, early adopters tend to be very vocal about how the product works for them. And then you can either listen to their feedback and, and give it bare minimum of efforts, or you can listen to their feedback and become singularly obsessed on their feedback because if you don't please your early adopters, you're not gonna please the, the audience that, you know, the, the wide population. So we took the critiques and, and wish lists that our early users would, use, would give us. When we only had a handful of partners, five, five and less partners on our platform, and we obsessed over that to solve those problems. So now we think we have a product that's ready for more users. Now we go out to get more users. With getting more users, you, you have this natural tipping point where now students are coming to Meritas to apply for schools that offer ISA programs, right? But you could have never done that if we said, let's open up a website and let's get the students to come. It, you, you can't, it really is focus on one block at a time and obsess over that block 
until you're ready to take on the next block. Yeah, it's not Field of Dreams. Build it, and they will. It's, come. it's not. It is not Field of Dreams. <laughs> it is definitely not Field of Dreams. <laughs> All right. So, I, yeah, you know, that sparked a question in my mind. Um, you know, it seems like you're great at keeping that singular focus, which is very important because so much that goes into entrepreneurship and it can be very daunting if you think about it all, right? Rather than just focus on what's in front of you. I guess, um, can you think of any ways in particular you use or know of to help you kind of like shut out all that noise and, you know, be so singularly focused? Yeah, it's, you know, I read a couple of books that, that I would encourage to your audience. Um, first, Lean Startup and then bullet journal. And the reason, and lean startup is just another entrepreneur's journey with a lean startup. But bullet journal, it's, it's a, a method of note-taking that I found super helpful to keep you prioritized because without, without discipline and discipline in your thoughts, all of a sudden every day you wanna tackle something else. And all those things that you really wanna tackle need to be tackled. But now you spend your days doing things, working hard and not working smart, right? Working just to work as opposed to actually being productive. Uh, the bullet journal technique, which if, if someone wants to read it, it was a great book. The bullet journal technique teaches you how to focus on the task at hand and also how to outline everything you need to do with different priorities, whether it's quarterly or monthly or even weekly. To, to keep you at that task. Because otherwise, without, without those tools, every day I'd say, what do I want to do today, right? But it may not be what I should do today. Yeah, I like how you focused on uh, discipline. I like that you use that word, because I've heard it, even in things like maybe a bit more mundane, like going to the gym uh, five times a week, if that's your goal, like most people struggle with that. I know I have, and someone once told me, you know, discipline is what you need because that's what will take over when motivation fails you and motivation will fail you. So, um, We're all so yeah, exactly. So no, I like that. Um, you know, you found kind of a framework out there that allows you to crystallize um, where the focus should be so you can stay on, uh, stay on target. What was it? What was it called? The bullet? The bu uh, Well, it's bullet journal. It's hate to plug someone else, but Google bullet journal and, and then the book will, will probably come up on Amazon. Hey, but if it's your, valuable, plug away. Yeah, no, it's great. The bullet journal technique, it was, it, was, it was super helpful. I'll give you an example, though, about discipline versus motivation. To your point, I work out every morning. I wake up and I work out because I like working out in the morning and I get it out of the way. If someone says, I'm going to work out today, but they don't, they don't plan what time they're going to work out, now it's 2 o'clock. Oh, maybe I'll work out at 3. Now it's 3 o'clock. Maybe I'll work out at 5. All of a sudden at seven o'clock and you never worked out. But to say, I'm gonna work out at this time every day, you do it, it's the discipline. It's the difference between discipline and motivation. My uh, COO at our company, she schedules her lunch periods in her daily calendar. And you know, for, for team meetings, she's busy during that, she books her lunch. And it's that discipline of even booking when you're gonna eat lunch or work on an assignment that keep structure in a day that could otherwise quickly unravel into a ball of fire drills. Yeah, I've seen that become more common. And even, uh, you know, when I was in business development, like I told you in SAS, uh, to keep myself accountable to, you know, cold outbound activity, I would 
book time on my calendar, usually different times of the day because I like to uh, just try that out. But, you know, just having it on my calendar, okay, sit down and cold call. That made what is sometimes a very unpleasant task of cold calling at least doable. Gave me the discipline I needed. Yep. So, yeah, I understand the, the merit of doing that quite well. So I want to take a bit of a pivot here. Um, I, obviously, with entrepreneurial endeavors, no matter how smart you are, everybody makes mistakes along the way. Um, and that's not always such a bad thing, provided you learn from them. They do provide for great learning uh, expertise, so uh, uh, learning experiences, excuse me. So I guess I have something of a two-part question here. What are you know some of the mistakes you think you've made that really stand out to you, and what are some of the learning lessons you've gleaned from them? Sure. <laughs> you know, it's funny talking about mistakes. I, I sort of view mistakes as a thousand to one, right? Anything could go wrong a thousand different ways. I don't focus on the thousand different ways it goes wrong. I focus on the one way it'll go right. You, you try and learn from those thousand mistakes to get to the one. So there, there's no blueprint, right? There's books, you could read other people's experiences, but there's no blueprint for everyone, any one person to follow. So every great advancement that I've had, and, and this is the point of mistake, but every great milestone or career advancement that I've had has come off the tail end of a failure, whether it's a relationship failure, a personal failure, or a work failure, but it's coming off that failure. And, and I thought about it and why that happens. And the reason that happens is you need a catalyst for change. You need a spark. And when you're on cruise control, you're not creating any sparks. And then I take that to when I was a partner at the law firm and I was happy and I took the 613 train home every day and life was easy, but there weren't any sparks anymore. Uh, you need that spark for change. And sometimes you don't get that spark until after you had a failure or made a mistake. Yeah, it goes back to what I think I said before, necessity being uh, the mother of invention. You're not going to change without a reason to change. Yep. It doesn't just, ha otherwise it's completely random, kind of causeless. So um, yeah, excellent point there. So I know you said you don't really think about mistake. You, you focus on the way it goes right, which is a great way to look at it. So this question might be a little weird for you, but I want to ask it anyway. I, I always like to know kind of where do you foresee things going wrong in the future and what are you doing to get out ahead of that? Because I'm, I'm sure you've contemplated at least a little bit, even if you are trying to keep your focus on where it goes oh, yeah. right. Absolutely. So, so I don't want to, going in to answer this question, I don't want to give the impression from my earlier comments that, that I embrace careless mistakes, make good mistakes. Thoughtless mistakes are terrible. A, a thought-out plan that has a mistake in it is fine, but a thoughtless and a careless mistake is terrible, and those should be avoided. Um, so we do think about, so we're not driving the car with blindfolds on. I mean, we're driving the car focused on the road. And we're driving fast, but we are conscious of the speed limit, and, and we're conscious of where the road's going. In my industry, what we're thinking about is the regulatory environment. And right now, ISA is being a novel product, there's still an absence of codifying federal regulations. So there's no universal set of rules coming out of federal Congress that we could look to. And states are starting to do a patchwork around ISAs. We want to get ahead of this. 
because this is the future of ISAs and this is super important for our, for a novel product. So we're working with the um, consumer affairs department. I'm not going to give the real name because we're still we haven't released the the uh, the consent agreement yet. But we're working with a very high profile state to draft with them ISA regulation that will be bound to that 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 the industry will adopt around. Right. So use the example. It would be a mistake to just do what you want and, and wait for regulation to come out. That'd be that'd be a thoughtless mistake. <laughs> we don't know what the regulation will be, but we see it's coming. So we get ahead of it and we're working with uh, the state regulators to draft ISA regulations, responsible ISA regulations based on our experience as being one of the market leaders. <laughs> so being concerned about regulation, you are definitely thinking like a lawyer. <laughs> um, note to self, if getting involved in a heavily regulated industry, it may pay to have a, a, a lawyer as a co-founder. Yes. So, but I, I like the approach you're taking rather than be reactive and just, um, you know, scramble once the regulation comes out, which you know it will, of course, Absolutely. is be part of the, the process, um, you know, to craft that legislation. So by default, you'll already be ready to acclimate to it. And it's, I got to say, that's a pretty bold approach to, you know, work with this. I feel like if I were in your shoes, I'd be uh, afraid to suggest such a thing. I'd be like, they're probably going to tell me to go, you know what, so. Well, no, it's, it's funny you say that because there's two mentalities on it, right? Stay undercover and don't rock the boat. Or, you know, wear your heart on your sleeves and announce your intentions. And we chose that based on our size and market position and, and what we're already doing, we know that the regulators in the states are aware of us. So, so there is no hiding under the covers and, and hoping the storm will pass. So we want, we want to be very proactive about it. And, and after we finish this um, consent order with the first state, we take that as the template to the second state. We have our list and we're just gonna go down until we hit all 50 states. Now this is an, again, an absence of federal regulation. We would love to see federal regulation like they have for student loans, but in absence of that, we're being super proactive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure the, the federal government, you know, moves at a glacial pace, but eventually they'll get there, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, so, you know, kind of to, to the same point, not exactly to it, but similarly, you know, entrepreneurship comes with a lot of stress, anxiety, loneliness, what all it's not um, all fun and games throughout. Let's put it that way. So I'm kind of curious to hear how you deal with, um, you know, those feelings, uh, you know, how you manage to stay disciplined in light of all that and keep on keeping on. Yeah. So I like to think that ideas are cheap. Execution is expensive. Uh, so what does that mean, right? Like during this podcast, you and I could both have five new great ideas. <laughs> what are you going to do with them, right? So to actually execute on the idea, that takes hard work. And to answer your question, then, you know, that hard work comes at sacrifice. It comes at personal sacrifice. It comes at risk of ruining personal relationships with family and friends because you're singularly focused on, on the task at hand. It, it comes with social sacrifice. What got me through all that? And, and and I experienced all of that. So what got me through that was listening to podcasts. Now, yours wasn't around then, but listening to podcasts 
from fellow entrepreneurs to hear their stories, to remind myself that I wasn't alone and everything that I'm going through, other people experience as well, right? We all, we're all taking our own path, but the path itself is shared. Yeah, um, it's great to find someone or something relatable. I, on a more personal note, outside of entrepreneurship, I've found that, I, I, you know, I don't think in my life I've ever had a problem that's truly unique to me. Someone else out there has had it, and commiserating in and of itself is a bit cathartic. But and it's also how you learn um, to deal with those problems. So it's important for entrepreneurs out there as they go through the struggle, um, thinking, "Oh man, this is all gonna fail and the the sky's gonna fall." Um, you know, running around like Chicken Little with your head cut off. Um, that every plenty of people who have made it have felt this way, have seen the signs you think you're seeing, and um, can help guide you through it. So um, I hope this podcast can be uh, such a resource to entrepreneurs, um, you know, at some point. And uh, if I get more experiences like yours, maybe it can be. So uh, yeah, thank no, you for sharing. Um, I'll give I'll give one other I'll give a practical piece of advice. I took up a hobby, and my hobby during the this was during the creation of my startup, right when when I left my job, and now I'm focused solely on my startup and during the, the the peak of the the cycle of I'm gonna win the world, I'm gonna lose everything, I'm gonna win, I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna win, I'm gonna lose. I took up wood splitting. I, I live in a in a yard with with a lot of trees in the backyard. It's it's sort of a you know a more rural community. And I started chopping wood. There is a tremendous relief that comes with slamming that axe down on, on a stump of wood and then splitting it, it was not only great exercise, but probably the most cathartic physical activity I've ever taken up. So I'm, I'm an avid wood splitter now, and I'm a Jewish boy from Long Island, but, <laughs> but I love chopping wood. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that act, it sounds, actually sounds kind of fun. I've never done anything like that, and it's a bit hard, uh, a bit hard of a, hobby to indulge in in New York City. Yeah, but, you can't uh, do it in Brooklyn. <laughs> no, certainly not. But that's, how did, how did you find out about something like that and just decide that was going to be where you channel your energy? I, I had, so I live in town in Westchester, Armonk, and, you know, big wooded backyards. And it started with just being practical. A tree fell and you had some limbs and you had to split it. And it's kind of fun hitting something with an axe. And that led to uh, finding the stumps and splitting the stumps. And that led to uh, going out and getting stumps and making the stumps to then split. It's just sort of the thing, right? No one wakes up and says, I'm going to chop wood today. But again, like, like creating the company, you're, you're on the path and your eyes are open and, and you're looking, you know, you're looking for the opportunities as, as you go about your day. Interesting. Um... Oh, what was I going to say? You get to the point. It got to the point where I started researching axes. And there's such a thing as a splitting axe. There's such a thing as a mole that weighs 12 pounds. Right? There's different types of axes depending on what kind of chop you want to do. <laughs> so now, so you've inadvertently become an axe expert. Yeah, and I have them lined up in my garage. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
okay, that's I didn't even know that was really a hobby, but I, I learned something yeah. interesting. What do you do with all that wood? Do you have a fireplace? I have a I have a fire pit, an outdoor fire pit, and I just burn it throughout the from winter to summer. I always just burn the wood. Uh, that sounds great. You get some beers, some marshmallows, and make some s'mores. Sounds uh, <laughs> the kids love it. Sounds quite pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I guess you know. I'm curious. What's up next for Meritas? I mean, is there? Uh, and uh, your focus has been a lot on obviously perfecting the platform. You know, you that was uh, really where you uh, you saw your efforts being most profitable. Do you have anything big planned on the roadmap that you're okay to talk about, or just kind of what are the next steps from here on? Yeah, out? no, absolutely. And this goes back to driving the car on the road and seeing the opportunities when they emerge, because you don't create a company and say we're going to do these three things. So we do have two verticals that we're pursuing now. First one is the origination and servicing of ISAs. That's our core. But because we do this core and we do it great. We have students coming in to our platform to join the schools with an ISA tuition method. And we see where the students are working afterwards, after they graduate. So with all this data of students coming in for school and then going out for jobs, our next two verticals are working with employers to pre-select the skills training that they need and then matching the employer with the school. So I'll give you an example. And we just started doing this. Hospitals have a very hard time getting junior level nursing staff because there's great demand for it and there's high turnover. So what could the hospital do? They could either put out a one ad, pay a recruiter and try and advertise for talent or, and this is what we're doing now, they could partner with Meritas and if they're spending $10,000 on retention and recruitment, take that same $10,000 we partner with one of the schools on our platform. So now we connected school to hospital. And that same $10,000 that they would have spent on recruiters and advertising, they now pay down the student's student debt. So the student gets a debt relief from the hospital and a guaranteed job offer when they graduate. If the student takes a job and works at the hospital for two years, that $10,000 is forgiven. If the student leaves the hospital before the two-year contract commitment is up, the ISA kicks back in and the student repays the $10,000 or a portion of it that the hospital paid in advance for the student. Ah, so you're, you're building a real like school-to-job pipeline there, which is great. Um, it's al almost guaranteeing employment, really, for um, people. Exactly, is... and that's, that's why I say we're a career acceleration platform at this point. Right, we started by focusing on one thing, and then we see the top of the funnel is students coming in for schooling, and the bottom of the funnel is graduates looking for jobs. And with all the data that we accumulate by being in the middle of the funnel and operating the platform, we're now working with employers to pinpoint the students who will become job seekers once the program is complete. As someone who was a bit aimless after school, and well, aimless going into school as well, I did it because I was, I don't know, just the thing to do. A career acceleration platform would have been a very nifty thing to have at that time. Yeah. So, you know, I'm wishing you all the best of luck with that. And I can't wait to see everything you accomplish with it. 
I really just have one last question for you, Darius. Um, do you, uh, you know, you've given a lot of great advice for up and coming entrepreneurs. Do you have any more parting words of advice, um, you know, before we take off? Yeah, I would say, and, and I touched on this, but to emphasize something, to be an entrepreneur, you need grit, you need to do it, right? I'm not gonna use the Nike slogan right now, but there's so many ways that you will be stopped from doing what you want to do. You need to have the determination to just just go and do it, right? It's, it's as simple as that. You, you don't have to ask permission, right? You have to do things lawfully, but you don't have to ask someone's permission. If you want to start your company, start your company, right? Like just go out and start doing it and, and drive that car. Yeah, one of the biggest inhibitors I've found speaking to entrepreneurs and learning about entrepreneurship is uh, thought paralysis. You can exactly. always you can always find reasons why it won't work, no matter exactly. how sure you try to make yourself. So eventually, you just got to take that plunge and um, you know learn as you go. Continue, keep getting ready and keep evolving. Exactly. All right. Great. Well, Darius, thank you so much. Again, really excited to see, uh, follow along with your journey, see everything Meritas accomplishes. And um, thank you once again for joining me. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. My, my pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Take care.